The following program is a presentation of the Wartime Podcast Network in association with PCN. I hope you enjoy the program, and remember, history is best when it's shared. After a great victory over Union forces in June 1863, Robert E. Lee marches his army to Pennsylvania. The advancing Confederates clash with General Meade's Union Army at Gettysburg, beginning the most famous battle of the Civil War. Explore our nation's past and the Gettysburg battlefield with the Gettysburg Collection. Become a member to stream hundreds of Gettysburg videos online, on the app, and on Roku. Learn more at GettysburgCollection.com. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Battlefield, Pennsylvania. Today we're on location at Fort Ligonier in Westmoreland County. In 1758, General John Forbes marched an army out of Philadelphia. His target was the French Fort Duquesne. In support of this venture, along the way, he built several posts, including one here on the Loyal Hannah Creek. In the years to come, Fort Ligonier would be the target of French attack and Indian raids, but remain a vital place of security in a very dangerous world. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Joining me today to discuss Fort Duquesne is Erica Knuckles, Director of History and Collections at Fort Ligonier, and Brad Moody, Master Restorationist. Thank you both for being here. Let's begin by asking, what first got you involved in this time period? Well, I sort of got into it as a very little girl. Um, I come from a family of reenactors, and when I was two and a half years old, I started reenacting the French and Indian War out of Fort Pitt Museum and spent my upbringing at forts over the weekends, all over the country, and even up in Nova Scotia at Louisburg. And I started coming to Fort Ligonier in 1988 when I was six years old, and I absolutely loved it, and I got to see what a dynamic historic site it was because it was always changing and expanding. There was always something new going on at Fort Ligonier. So when it came to choosing a career, um, I first got an internship while I was in college at Bushy Run Battlefield. And that's when I decided I wanted to work in museums or historic sites where I had grown up. And I, my dream job was to work at Fort Ligonier. And I've realized that dream, here I am. <laughs> Well, I grew up in rural Ohio, and I can remember a teacher assigning a book about the early colonization and the settlement of that part of Ohio, and the stories about the Indian raids and everything that went on. And so I built my first fort when I was 11 years old, maybe 10. And I've always been interested in history from that first spark, the first time when I decided, gee, this is fascinating. So, and I've been doing it ever since. Now, we're in a wonderful museum today. There's an incredible recreation of Fort Ligonier outside. Can we talk a little bit about the recent history of this place? How did these come to be? Well, the first pieces of land that were preserved of Fort Ligonier were preserved in 1934 by a local DAR chapter out of Latrobe. 
and in 1934 they purchased two 60-foot lots of land that was believed to have been the original fort grounds and they dedicated that those plots of land with a plaque that is now out front of, of our museum today um, and into the 1940s, in 1946, uh, the Fort Ligonier Association, what it's called today, was formed to expand the preservation of that land. And around the same time, they sent some researchers to England who found some of the wonderful maps that are on display behind us. And uh, they also did a dig, an archeological dig in 1947. And the dig and the maps combined gave people the idea, well, maybe we could start to reconstruct the fort. Um, and so the first phase of construction went on from 1949 to 1969. During that time, there were major archeological digs that helped to really pinpoint some of the areas of the fort um, so that the, the reconstruction could be on the, the original footprint of the fort. Um, and the museum first opened in 1962 um, and Brad was involved in from the, from the mid 90s. Um, oh, mid, mid from 80s. the 80s. Um, Almost if the like same time that you that. got here. Yeah. <laughs> Except I was much older. <laughs> and uh, when I started here, we started to do some um, upgrading and some restoration of the structures that were here. And at the same time, we looked forward and started to plan a project that would double the size of the fort and to look at the surveys that were done in 1758 and go and dream and say, wouldn't it be great if we could build this and build that? And sat together with the people, did the planning, raised the money, and actually in 1996, we started a project called Completing the Fort, where we started to build the outer retrenchment, the fascine cannon batteries, officers' quarters, hospital buildings, smokehouse, and we had all those structures and then we decided we needed furniture outside so we started building cannons and mortars and howitzers and carts and wagons and from that in a 20-year span you have what you see today outside that's how the modern history of it developed now we're never going to stop at that next phase is to build a more onto this building so that we can redo these exhibits relocate the store and make this truly a world-class facility. Now, the people who live in this, in this area are very proud of their preservation, aside from the restoration, but if you were British, if you were coming here before the Seven Years' War in this region, what was it like? What would you have seen? Not Nothing. much. Yeah. <laughs> this, was, this was the frontier. This was nowhere. There were maybe a few trappers, maybe, and then some and Indians, and that's it. Yeah, there, there wasn't even an, a native settlement here in the 1750s. There had been previously, but it was the Wild West. <laughs> yes. Now, France will upset that balance in a pretty big way in 1754. They build Fort Duquesne at modern Pittsburgh. How did that placement of that fort change this whole region? Well, the forks of the Ohio were such a contested region because if you controlled the waterways, you could control trade for hundreds or thousands of miles. Um, so it was a very strategic place to control. Um, and of course, the, the British were very interested in, in that area as well and had tried to build their own fort that the French had booted them out of um, prior to building Fort Duquesne. 
Um, so it was just a really strategic and important area for building empires. Brad, when you look at Fort Duquesne, it doesn't look like much bigger forts we see. It's actually very small in a lot of ways. Uh, could you talk a little bit about Fort Duquesne and why it was so important for the French? As Erica said, it just held the, the pass. It was guarding the gateway to the west. And the two colonies, Pennsylvania and Virginia, both wanted to have that spot because if Virginia had it, this would be part of Virginia. If Pennsylvania had it, then it became part of Pennsylvania. So it was important. The French wanted it as an outpost to deal with the Indians in Ohio and the rest of the, of the tribes in, just to stop the westward expansion of the British. So it was a contested area um, from the fact that the Virginia troops under Washington tried to dislodge the French, came back with Braddock, failed the second time. So when it was tasked to Forbes, he understood how much of a, of a job this was going to be and how important it was. In 1758, you have a radical change of policy in Britain, and a man named John Forbes, as you mentioned, is chosen to march on Fort Duquesne. Uh, could we talk a little bit about his background? Sure. Um, Forbes was a Scottish officer. Um, he actually had originally started out his training as a physician in um, Scotland, and but changed his mind. Um, through his training and decided to uh, join the military. And he was part of the Scots Greys, I believe in 1735 is when he joined up with that. He had experience in the War of Austrian Succession and uh, he was the quartermaster for the Duke of Cumberland during the Jacobite Rebellion of 1745. Um, and then during the Seven Years War in 1757, he had been involved in the um, in reinforcing the uh, failed attempt on Louisburg that year. Um, but by the, the end of that year, he had gotten a promotion to Brigadier General in North America and then was, was tasked with the Forbes campaign of 1758. Now that's a big job. Um, <laughs> could we maybe collectively talk about what was his goal and what was ahead of him? Well, his goal was to take Fort Duquesne and he had to choose a route, he had to recruit troops, he had to supply them. It was kind of a logistical nightmare, um, <laughs> as uh, many campaigns were during the, the Seven Years' War. Um, and he had to choose that road, and he, he had some opposition to the road he, he chose, because some people like George Washington would have preferred him to have taken the Braddock Road um, for various reasons. <laughs> Um, but he chose to cut across from Philadelphia, across the mountains, um, to try to get at Fort Duquesne from that, that angle instead. I think he also studied the two campaigns that preceded him, and part of the reason that he decided he wanted to cut his own road, is I, I don't think he cared for that, that route, and I think that he also felt that um, that was gonna be too predictable and Forbes was the, had the bean counter mentality of a quartermaster, so that he pl and planned out. And he understood what Braddock's failure was. Braddock outran, he outmarched his supplies, so that he didn't even have the majority of his artillery when he was taken. So Forbes' whole plan was not to do that, and that's how he came up with the idea of building a fortified supply depot every 50 miles as he marched to the west. He, and, and I've always credited him with winning the war 
not by the size of his army and not by the number of cannons and mortars and howitzers, but by the fact that he thought it out so well, and that he was bringing an army that was so large and so well prepared that no foe was gonna stand in front of him. Now, uh, most people are bored by logistics, but as historians, we get, we get really excited about it. So could we maybe talk about some of the challenges he faced before he even left for his expedition? And what does it take to build a road across what we know as today the state of Pennsylvania? Well, he needs to, he needs people, he needs wagons, um, which means, and supplies, which means he needs cooperations of the colonials um, in Pennsylvania. Um, so that's the first step, I suppose. And then he needs to go across and um, places like, um, say, Fort Littleton, which was sort of fortified. <laughs> he has to build up places that are already in existence along the road. He has to clean up the road if roads are in existence and then build roads that don't exist um, and and across the mountains. <laughs> and the one that he really built, which was the total feat, was to actually build some sort of a wagon path or trail from Fort Bedford over the mountains to Fort Ligonier. That always ended up being the most difficult part of the road and also the one that stayed in the worst state of repair so that that made it much more difficult. To pr appreciate what he did, you almost have to end up with two things, an 18th century brain and an 18th century idea of speed. And 50, 60 miles an hour for us is nothing. 50, 60 miles um, it, it is just a huge distance. When they're traveling at three and a half to seven miles an hour, so when Forbes decided that he was going to make his supply depots 50 miles apart, that's a forced day's march. I mean, and that's not a leisurely walk on the woods. That's we're going to get there if we want to keep our hair, we're going to get there. So you're marching and you're trying to get cover as much ground as you can. But if you get that idea that it's an entire day to do 50, we do it in less than an hour. So just, you kind of have to think that way in order to come up with what a monumental task it was. Now getting here is hard enough. He actually has to, in most cases, blaze the trail he takes. Mm -hmm. So how much time did it take him to get from Philadelphia to our current location? About maybe uh, the first part of it's not hard, as I said. To get to the Juniata, to get to Bedford, that's not difficult. But when you're building a road and you're marching forward, depending on the terrain, you may only cover a mile or two miles in a day. If you do seven as you're clearing the road, well, you're, you are really picking them up and putting it down. So. Once again, 18th century sense of speed. Now, as he's marching, he's building not only a road, but forts. Uh, what does he build? Well, he builds Bedford, and, which was also known as Raystown, Raystown. and he builds Fort Ligonier, um, which and was- fortified camps along yeah, the way. Yeah, and he fortifies those camps like Loudoun and Littleton along the way. Um, but Bedford and, and Ligonier, He's, he's building those. And Bedford was huge, way bigger than what you're looking at behind you. I mean, it, was, it covered almost the entire town of Bedford today. So that was a huge undertaking. But then you're gathering all these supplies. And I think Forbes understood that the last push to get over these last couple of mountains to Ligonier, he was going to collect a lot of supplies there, so he needed a lot of space because it was going to be more difficult to get them over the last two ranges.
The enemy's still very far away from where we are in some cases. So what are these forts used for if they're not going to defend against attack? They were being attacked all the time. The, the, the troops that were communicating either up country or down country were constantly being uh, raided, uh, subject to attack. They would come in and want to uh, just shoot the animals, run the animals off, take whatever they could get. So the enemy really is at Fort Duquesne, but there's parties of them, parties of French, parties of Indians that are roaming the countryside, it, absolutely trying to upset um, Forbes' campaign for the obvious reason that they knew um, his army was irresistible. So they had to do something and that was the place to do it. And that's why it was important that Forbes had the plan mm -hmm. to have these every, every 50 miles approximately, um, these fortified supply depots so that to you, protect his supplies. Right, so that if you were attacked, you always had it in your mind, I'm only 25 miles, half a day's march, back to safety and resupply. And part of Braddock's failure was that his men were marching step after step after step deep into the wilderness where they had no idea what was behind that tree or that rock or whatever. And that had to play on their psyche the entire time they were marching into, what, the wilderness. <laughs> and so when Forbes gave his men the reassurance that they had of these fortified supply depots, I think it gave them, it stiffened their spines, gave them courage. We just mentioned the threat of constant attack, not from French soldiers, but from Indian warriors. Can we talk about how the Indian warriors of this region worked with the agents of New France? Um, well, they were agents of terror. <laughs> they were very good at um, using even small numbers to constantly be trying to terrorize Forbes' campaign um, and to slow them down. Because really, the French seemed to be just trying to slow them down so that they wouldn't attack in 1758, um, trying to sort of force them into, into, the winter. into winter quarters. Yeah, right. One of the things I love about this museum is that you give a, a global sense of a war. And people might wonder, why would a native person from North America have any care for defending the values of the King of France. And we see this in India and we see it in Africa. So why were the native peoples of this region drawn to the French Empire? Go ahead, because <laughs> I might have a different idea. Well, I ahead. mean, um, trade, gifts, I mean, uh, there had been such a fundamental shift in their culture since Europeans had arrived. Um, there were less of the French. I mean, there, there are a lot of different reasons that were perhaps their motivations. Um, those are sort of the basic ones I can think of. So what the lesser it, of two evils, maybe you well, could say for them. French yeah, had better trade yeah, goods too. Yeah, they, they, yeah. The French had better goods. The French treated the Indians better. Mm -hmm. um, I think they were more honest with them. And that was a big failing with the um, British and the, and the colonies too, because they wanted the land and the French wanted the, what the Indians could give them. They wanted the fur trade. They wanted fish. They wanted other things. Um, the Indians were not a civilized people. They weren't civilized. And when someone would come up with a better deal, they'd do whatever, what they, whatever that other person wanted them to do. And when the French lost their hold over here, they easily gave up their allegiance and went with the British. Although Forbes was one of few British officers mm -hmm. who really did make a concerted effort 
um, trying to get the Cherokee and Catawba um, at the Treaty of the Treaty of Easton was very important to the Forbes campaign. Um, the results of the Treaty of Easton and the natives um, remaining neutral and um, the the French allies that were left at Fort Duquesne at that point went into their winter quarters. Um, Forbes really, really understood the importance of Indian diplomacy, um, uh, and he even stressed that to uh, Amherst. You know, upon upon Forbes's death, you know, right as his, his death was impending, um, that you really need to to take this into consideration, and that they the are they are smarter than what we we would like to think that they don't necessarily just pick whatever side they think is going to win. <laughs> There's a little more to it than that. I'm always trapped by my 18th century brain. <laughs> so I think of them as savages and Well, yeah. yeah. And that's just because I have that 18th century brain. Yeah, and Forbes was was different in mm -hmm. his 18th century brain. <laughs> Not all 18th century brains are alike, I no, guess. No. Not all brains today aren't the same. <laughs> okay, so let's get back to Fort Ligonier, our topic. You don't just build forts anywhere. I mean, Forbes probably had any choice of locations. What is it about right here that was so attractive for this fort? Okay. The fort was built here because it had two great natural lines of defense. You see the map behind us? There's the stream, the Loyal Hannon. There's also a series of stone cliffs that run all the way down the south side of the fort. It had an artesian well that provided fresh drinking water, plus there were natural breaks in the forest, which are fields today that we park cars in, for Fort Ligonier days that provided forage. So you have two natural defenses, you have fresh water, you have forage for the animals. And even though it is commanded on two sides by high ground, Forbes brought enough artillery with them that that really wasn't ever gonna be an issue. So it's about halfway between Bedford and FDQ, and it's on a good site so that if unmounted, enemy is attacking you, they have obstacles they must encounter that are already there. You're going to just add to their burden. Great place to build a fort. Brad, you are a master restorationist, mm -hmm. so you know this better than anyone, but what goes into building a fort ostensibly in the middle of nowhere? Do you use local materials? Do Start you bring things with the, you? The first tree you cut down is the first log that's laid for the, either the outer retrenchment or most likely the first thing they started construction of were storehouses. Because as armies back then, as armies today, they still travel on their stomach. If you're not well supplied, you are not going to succeed. But that entire area that this fort covers had trees on it, and they just cut them down and put them to use, turned them into timbers, turned them into to palisados, whatever it was, and just cleared the area around. The immediate area closer to where they were building, they even grubbed out the stumps so that they wouldn't provide a defensive spot for the enemy. So you just started working. I like the idea that Byrd came here with 1,500 men in July of 58 to start construction of the fort. And they worked in shifts, and 500 men, and they would work mostly around the clock as much as they could. They were motivated by the fact that the sooner the fort was done, the greater their life expectancy. There really were no other distractions. As we stated before earlier, this is absolute wilderness. There's nothing to do here but get your job done, make your life better, make your life longer. Now, if you visit 18th century forts, you'll notice they all 
sort of look the same. People who watch this show know that very well. Can we talk about the design of these forts? How well known was it and what was it meant to achieve? Once again, go back to the Army. Armies like to build, like to do things that are the same. They like to be repetitious so that you don't have to get complicated and tell somebody to do something different every time. So they just built Fort Bedford. You are building a fort designed to defeat your enemy. So you're going to build it in rings of defense. And you have an outer, you have uh, redoubts, you have an outer retrenchment, and then you have the palisadoed or horizontal log wall for the inner part of your fort that protects your storehouses. The construction of it is in five-pointed or four-pointed stars so that you always have an opportunity for infilating fire so that you can shoot down a line so there's no place for the enemy to rush to your wall and have a place to hide out. Um, it was a Vauban in, in France. And uh, it's amazing, but the French were the engineers of the time period. So a lot of the elements that you'll find at Fort Ligonier all have French names. And it's much easier to use that French name instead of translating it and becoming confused. So they just kept it, they had just adopted the French terms for everything. Yeah, they're all the same because it's easier to do. Now we see armies marching in Europe, fighting the Seven Years' War. They have lots of artillery, they have cavalry. A fort like this couldn't have withstood a massive major attack like that. Did they have that in mind when they built it? I don't think that they understood the strength and the weakness of Fort Duquesne. I think what they did was they took information that they had got anecdotally from the campaigns that preceded it to determine what they were going to bring in the way of cannons, mortars and howitzers. When um, Washington was defeated, he surrendered his artillery. When he returned with Braddock, he surrendered his artillery again. Forbes had no way of knowing all of those guns weren't sitting waiting for his approach. So when he put his campaign together, starting in England, he wanted a lot of big shiny things to take with him. He wanted everything he could get his hands on that would go bang. Um, the reality of it was, and he would have no way of knowing this, Fort Duquesne's weak. It's commanded on three sides. It's great for stopping canoes. It's terrible for stopping armies. The French inspector general, when he surveyed the constructed Fort Duquesne, realized how weak it was, and all of those captured arms were sent down the Ohio River up through present-day Chicago to the Great Lakes and back to Canada. And we know that because we found them later on at, toward the end of the French and Indian War. They were in Quebec and in Montreal. So they really, there really wasn't that much here. The artillery that he brought, if any other army tried to put a cannon battery up on high ground around him, he had the means and the ability to dispatch it almost instantly. Now, if we were here in 1758, Forbes has thousands of men with him. If we walk around the grounds, what do we see? What do we hear? What do we smell? It was a bustling place. Um, you know, at its peak, there were over five or 6,000 people here. And it was really a sort of mobile community. You know, we're, there would be soldiers building, maintaining the fort, tending to the livestock, on guard duty, drilling, baking bread, um, in addition to the officers. And then lots of people associated with the Army, um, camp, camp follower women and children that were here, um, women serving as laundresses and nurses, um, sutlers selling goods to the Army, um, artificers, you know, people doing trades like blacksmithing, 
making shoes, fixing shoes, um, tailors, just a, a huge community that was here because it was the middle of nowhere and you just had to bring everyone and everything that you could to keep the army fed, clothed, sheltered. <laughs> Mud in the spring, Muddy. dust in the summer, yeah. <laughs> ice in the winter. It was not, and the, uh, some of the later reports of what went on here, this wasn't a good place to be. Mm -hmm. So in, later on, in the heyday though, this was a bustling little spot. Now one of the great attributes about this site and this museum is that we have a lot of material remains. We have evidence that children were here. We have evidence that women were here. Erica, can you talk about some of the highlights of those artifacts? Sure. Out of the archaeological digs that have been ongoing since 1947, um, some of the most remarkable things found here were found in a stream bed where things were dumped. Um, and the stream bed with the silt and mud that made up the stream bed, it it deprived any object that was thrown in there of oxygen for the 200 years before they were excavated, mainly in the 1960s. Um, among those items are things that perhaps normally don't get preserved archaeologically, things made out of wood and tin, and especially leather. Uh, we have the largest collection of shoe leather from the French and Indian War era because of that stream bed, and it does include the wooden heels of women's shoes, uh, the soles, the leather soles of women's and children's shoes. So we always know that women and children are present on these campaigns, but very rarely do we have a written account from their voice or any physical evidence of something that they would have had or worn or used. So um, it's a really remarkable archeological collection here. Why would a person bring their wife or child on such a dangerous mission in such a uh, dangerous place? Well, some of the women who were married to soldiers, although soldiers were in the regular army were discouraged from marrying, um, they were career camp followers just as their husbands were career soldiers. Um, you know, we have women like Martha May who writes of serving for decades, bringing water to her husband in the army in the hottest battles. Um, they would go wherever the army sent them, wherever in the world. Um, and then there might be some women who are married to a provincial soldier and they may not have much of a choice of whether to stay home, if they have a home, <laughs> um, uh, alone without their husband there. Um, so they are sort of forced to or choose to perhaps follow their husband uh, during their service in the provincial army. Now, some people will wonder why a British fort has a French name. <laughs> Can we talk about the name Ligonier? Sure. Um, fort Ligonier gets its name from Field Marshal John Ligonier, who is essentially in charge of the entire British army during uh, the this time of the Seven Years' War. Um, John Ligonier was a French Huguenot and actually his name was Jean-Louis Ligonier. <laughs> um, he was born in France, but because he was a Huguenot, uh, he faced religious persecution. Uh, many Protestants fled from France, and he was among them. And he fled to Ireland and pretty much worked his way up through the army and, uh, he, until he was field marshal um, at the time that, that Fort Ligonier was built. Um, and so we are the British fort with a French name. 
And you have a painting of John Ligonier. We do. We have a portrait of, of John Ligonier. It's a very wonderful, beautiful portrait by Sir Joshua Reynolds, uh, one of the great artists of the 18th century. Now, before this fort is completed, if it's ever completed, agents of France in, in Fort Duquesne realize it's happening. They send out a force to attack. Can we talk about that battle? About a month before, um, against Forbes' wishes, Major James Grant went forth and tried to attack Fort Duquesne. Um, he had false intelligence that it was a weak and he showed up with about 800 men, and it was almost a repeat of Braddock's defeat. Um, he lost about a third of his men. He himself was taken, capt uh, was captured and became a prisoner of the French. Um, and so about a month later, the French sort of came after Fort Ligonier. And, uh, you know, it's, it was October 12th, and that morning probably started out as a regular morning at the fort. It wasn't completely built yet, so there, there was most certainly work being done on the fort. And there were grass guards who were soldiers out guarding the cattle and the horses out in the fields across the creek, uh, across the Loyal Hannah Creek. And they got attacked. So um, Bird, who was in charge at the time, with about 1,500 troops at the fort. He thought it was, to, initially, uh, thought it was just sort of a raid, so he sent a couple hundred troops out. Um, the, the firing intensified, um, so he sent 500 more men out, and they eventually got pushed back, um, and there was about a four-hour battle. So from about 11 a.m. was the first, first attack um, until about 3 p.m., and ultimately it was the artillery here that, that was able to drive them back. Uh, the French did that night attack again, um, but I think it was uh, one of the quotes in one of the documents is that the cannon and cohorns intimidated them and drove them back again. Bird wrote to, I think it was Bouquet, and said that he launched um, bombs from the eight-inch howitzers and the eight-inch mortars that he had with them, and that so dispirited the enemy that they called off any general attack. Indians just couldn't stand cannon fire or shell fire, even to a greater extent. Um, I tell school groups all the time that the Indians were well aware of guns that went bang, but here's a gun that goes bang and then the bullet goes bang. So when those shells would blow up in the woods around them, they had no idea how that happened. So it was absolutely terrifying. Now the French style of fighting and the Indian style of fighting are very different. How did they cooperate? The, the French regular army would have fought like any European army in Europe. The Canadian Rangers and the Indians fought like Indians. And the one plus I think that the French regulars had is that they understood that and they were more, more acceptable to the idea of fighting like that, whereas the British never were. There's wouldn't. Our colonial troops, Pennsylvania and Virginians, would adapt the Indian way of fighting, but the regular soldiers from the British realm wouldn't. They didn't. They just thought that was unmanly. To hide behind a tree and discharge your weapon is just cowardly. So they wouldn't want that done. But you know, they would still fire in mass, and it wasn't so much that it was because that was their style. It's because that's the only way a musket's effective. A single shot from a musket's going to be almost worthless. But if you fire 
100 at a time, then you'll have some noticeable effect. Was there a sense of urgency after that attack that they must take Fort Duquesne faster than they planned on? No, I think they gave up. Almost. The, well, the fact I think, of getting it done yeah, because of supply. Well, and in October, there's still, that's when the Treaty of Easton is going on. So they're still kind of waiting. And I think Forbes really did, he really wanted to go for it. But by by November, he, he really made the decision to wait um, until a few things happened. Yeah, yes. <laughs> um, History overtook him. One of them was the results of the Treaty of Easton. Um, and the other was the friendly fire incident that happened here and what resulted of that. Uh, Could you talk about the Treaty of Easton? It's pretty important for the story. Sure. So the Treaty of Easton that happened in October of uh, 1758 um, was a, a very long, almost the entire month of negotiations, um, mainly with the Ohio Indians, uh, which resulted in them uh, remaining neutral. In exchange, there was to be no British settlement west of the Alleghenies. Um, so that, that was a, a big push for Forbes, a big reason for him to go after Duquesne, um, because Fort Duquesne, since Grant's defeat in September of 58, um, he was losing natives. <laughs> um, with each battle, they were getting prizes and trophies, and they were receiving gifts. And once they would receive those, then some of them would leave. They were satisfied. Um, and so with each sort of battle, um, they had lost more and more, and by the few remaining that, uh, that were there by November, by the end of the Treaty of Easton, um, those were, were eventually lost as well, as word of the Treaty of Easton uh, reached the, the natives there. Um, so the Treaty of Easton was a very significant reason why Forbes eventually did, um, it was once one of a few circumstances but a major one that really had him push to go for, for Fort Duquesne in 1758 rather than wait until the spring of 1759. But in that, in that friendly fire incident is when they captured um, right. soldiers from Fort Duquesne. And they're the ones that relayed the information about how many of the Native Americans had fought their battles and they were only they only signed up for the one they didn't sign up for the entire campaign as Erica said they had their prizes they had their trophies and it was time for them to go home and prepare prepare for winter so they basically abandoned the French now if you understand all of that you know that the fort is in a in a vulnerable position sitting here waiting is only going to allow the French to become stronger for the Indians to come back in the spring to go on another rampage so they went ahead with the attack. And as everyone knows, that when they got within 13 miles, the French blew the place up and abandoned it. So it was a good thing they did it when they did it. Now, we've been alluding to this a few times, but people would be surprised to know that not only was George Washington here, but he almost died here. So could we talk about that, as we say, friendly fire incident? Sure. So George Washington was a colonel in the Virginia Regiment. and. He arrived at Fort Ligonier um, in late October. So he wasn't here for the battle that happened on October 12th. He came a little bit after that. Um, while he was here, uh, there was another attack on the grass guards um, on November 12th of 1758. 
Um, and Forbes sent out uh, Colonel George Mercer, who was also of the Vir Virginia Regiment, um, with 500 troops to go after and basically to give them chase, these, these French and native um, raiders that were attacking the grass guards. Um, the fighting intensified and Washington was sent out with another 500 um, to, to help out Mercer. Um, it was getting late in the day. It was around 4 or 4.30. Um, so it was starting to get a little dark. It was a fog had set in and essentially what happened is the two groups of Virginia provincials were trying to flank the French and Indians and ended up running right into each other. Um, when they realized what had happened that they were firing upon their own men, um, the officers, including Washington, ran down, very bravely ran down the front of the lines, throwing the, the muskets up with their swords to try to get them to stop um, firing at each other. Um, you know, friendly fire incidents in any time period are very traumatic and it's something that I think really affected Washington. Um, he hardly ever wrote about it. Um, he, he writes about it actually later in life when he's asked to remember his time during the French and Indian War. Um, and this was after the French and Indian War, after the revolution and just before he becomes president, he writes these remarks. And in those remarks, writing about what happened at Fort Ligonier, he said that was of all the times in his life where he had been in battle, um, that that was when his life was in the most danger, was here at Fort Ligonier. And as Brad mentioned, um, you know, despite lo having lost, you know, around 40 men, you know, there were 40 casualties from this friendly fire incident, um, which I'm sure was quite devastating, um, they did manage to capture three French prisoners, you know, one of them, which gave them information, intelligence that that Fort Duquesne was weak. So another another factor, because really the I think it was the day before Forbes had said we're not going to go, gonna go. <laughs> and so uh, after they got this prisoner with with the Treaty of Easton, you know Frontenac had been taken, so um, supplies were being cut off from the French at Fort Duquesne. Um, it was the time to strike, and they went, and uh, November 24th is when they arrived um, at Fort Duquesne. They found it abandoned and blown up. Um, they had heard the explosion the day before, um, but they, they did take it, and it became Pittsburgh. Back on the friendly fire incident, aren't we planning on doing a little kind of a dig out there if we can? We might. We might. And the other thing I've always wanted <laughs> to do. We're trying to find it. Yeah to find the exact site. The other thing I wanted to do and always have wanted to do is to reenact it. Hmm. And we have, for Fort Ligonier days, we'll have between 200 and 250 reenactors here. It'd be terrific if we could march them out in the wilderness on actually old Forbes Road and then have them recreate it. Might be able to, just by having them do that, you might learn some things. If they fired their muskets, you'd be able to hear whatever they heard here at the fort that helped to make the decisions to, number one, send Washington out with 500 more. Just by reliving history, maybe you learn some history. So I mean, that might be a neat thing to do. Now, when Fort Duquesne falls, many call it the beginning of the British occupation of this region. The fall of Fort Duquesne, how does that change things on the ground for everyone, Indian and white involved? I don't know that that was the seminal moment, I think the idea that 
Prideaux and Johnson eventually marched on Niagara that cut the supply line and the line of communication to all of the forts to the west. And at that point, the three rivers for the British and for the colonies now became secure. Before that, they were constantly in a state of flux. Are they going to attack? When are they going to attack? They had Indian spies at Venango and up at Presque Isle and taking a look at the number of soldiers that were coming in from Detroit, the Indians who were coming across Lake Erie, when they were going to attack, uh, the rumors about the number of cannon that they were bringing in from Detroit. So they were constantly preparing for the French to retake it. But when Prideaux took Niagara, it was over with. And from then on in, this became the gateway to the West, and it changed. They still had to um, plan campaigns, uh, and they still had to, to um, supply the troops. But Fort Pitt was built uh, at Pittsburgh. The original artillery that they gave them were six cohorn mortars. Um, before the British artillery returned to the east, they took two five and a half inch howitzers, which were the first major pieces of artillery uh, at Fort Pitt, and they came from here. Uh, after that, the British turned it completely over to the provincials. You'll man it, you'll take care of it, and it did that till the end of its days. And I'd also say about just 1750 in general that it's just, uh, the, for, the success of the Forbes campaign is just one of several successes of the British Army that year. And so it really was a turning point that gave them some momentum. You know, they'd taken Louisburg, they had, had taken Frontenac. They unfortunately hadn't taken Ticonderoga, no. but, <laughs> but three out of four ain't bad. bad. <laughs> um, so the, 1758, just in general, in the North American theater of war was, was just a big turning point for the British Army. Fort Pitt's a very big project, and it looms large in the minds of, of British citizens everywhere. Uh, Fort Ligonier's built. What's the relationship between Fort Ligonier and Fort Pitt in the years that follow? When you're moving supplies up country or up fort, you have to have these places to supply them. Uh, one of the things that they found out early on, Forbes' idea was to ship all of his goods all the way to the Battle of Fort Duquesne, all the way to even, I'm sure he thought ahead, but after uh, the fall of Fort Duquesne, that he would still be supplying Fort Pitt, that, whether they named it that or not. It would all be done by wagons. It didn't take them very long to find out that wagons were not the best method of transportation. The road coming from Bedford to Fort Ligonier ended up being so bad the most they could carry in a wagon is about 800 pounds, and normally they were carrying almost twice that much. But because of the condition of the road, they cut it way back. Well, if you have four horses pulling a wagon with 800 pounds in it, you can also take those four horses and put 200 pounds on each one, and you don't have to pull the wagon. So what they did after they discovered that was to use Fort Bedford as a terminus for the wagons. The wagons that had originally made it over here were then just used to transport between Ligonier and Fort Pitt. But most of the goods came over the mountain on horseback. And in uh, pack horse trains of up to 100. And then you would send, um, even in 59, you were still sending escorts. So that if a supply of goods were going to travel from Ligonier to Fort Pitt, 
Fort Pitt would send an escort out to meet the meet them, and then they would go back. The same thing as you transported, you communicated between Bedford and Ligonier. You'd always send escorts. That's in, how it functioned. In the aftermath of the Seven Years' War, 1763, we see a major Indian uprising in this region. Some call it Pontiac's Rebellion, others Pont uh, Pontiac and Gaiasuto's Rebellion, whatever you want to call it. Uh, could we talk about what spurred that on and how it affected Fort Ligonier? So all of the formerly French forts um, that were now taken over by the British in the Great Lakes region especially, um, you know, they, they had been taken over by the British. Amherst had reduced a lot of the gifts to natives that they weren't very pleased about. Um, so there were a variety of factors that led to a concerted rebellion, um, a, a real cooperation among many, many different uh, native tribes to rise up and take these forts uh, from the British. Um, in present-day Michigan, it was at Detroit, Fort Michel and Mackinac, and then pretty much every spot from Fort Niagara down to Fort Pitt was taken. Uh, places along the Forbes Road were um, harassed and terrorized, um, including Fort Ligonier. Fort Ligonier was attacked twice in June of 1763, and uh, you know when you when you read the accounts of the people here, there's such a fear to leave, to, to try to, to leave, to even get letters to people, um, trying to get supplies, trying to figure out what's happening at Fort Pitt, Pitt because Fort Pitt gets put under siege. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a very fearful and uncertain time for uh, the, the garrisons along the Forbes Road in 1763. And the garrisons weren't large. Yeah. But simply by having a fort here for that number of years, you had settlements that developed around here. Well, the people in those settlements, on the first sign of an Indian attack or an alarm, which they called them alarms back then, would all rush to Fort Ligonier or to the closest fort, and then they would help the defenders. So that's one of the reasons why the fort was never taken. The Indians also rose up because they kept getting promised that the French father was going to come back and the big white sailed vessels and the white clad soldiers were once again going to drive the redcoats from the territory. So they were quite certain it was going to happen. And when it didn't, it, and their, their rebellion collapsed quickly. Could we talk about the military end of Fort Ligonier in 1766? What brought that on and how do you eliminate a place that was so important for so long? Rot. <laughs> Rot? Yeah, it wasn't really built to last. It wasn't. I mean, yeah. it, the, the original idea for the fort was to build something that was going to last for the length of the campaign, which would be about eight months. And if it lasted for eight years, it outserved you know, what it had originally been designed for. It's a large structure, same as Bedford. Um, the only thing that the that the colony of Pennsylvania was interested in was the upkeep and the maintenance of uh, Fort Pitt because it was important to them. Fort Ligonier to them wasn't that. And once you have reduced dramatically the incident of Indian hostility or the threat that there's going to be another French invasion, there's, they can, the, the uh, assembly in Pennsylvania can't see why they need to fund all these other places, so they don't. And so there's no repair. So wood rots. Um, sod blocks that form the batteries disintegrate. Uh, you make the decision to decommission the fort. 
and even back then we had scrappers and people that wanted adaptive reuse and they came in and made use of everything that was here. We used to joke back and forth that there was a story once told that the settlers came in and they burnt all the buildings down so they could get the ironwork out of it. And that is just the fiction. Why would I, I know how hard it is to make a log for a building. Why would I go burn one when I can take it apart, drag it to my place with a horse, put it back up again, and I've got somebody else did all my work for me? They didn't do that. If there was some debris there, I doubt they even burned it. They would just take what they wanted and, and then left. They're they not going to waste anything. Yeah, and, and Fort Ligonier was officially decommissioned in 1766, and Arthur St. Clair became its civil caretaker at that point. Um, he had been an officer uh, during the French and Indian War as well, um, and, and would go on to be one in the, the American Revolution. And they built other forts, too, in the area. So and they just it didn't keep this one up. Eventually, it became all houses. And now I've got most of those gone. We've seen a few battles here. We've seen lots of people come through. Uh, we have this great site and museum today. What do you feel should be the ultimate legacy of Fort Ligonier? Well, Fort Ligonier, when you come to a place like Fort Ligonier, you're not just coming to a place of local history or even national history. It's a place of global history. You know, this, this 1758, what was happening here, there were things happening all over the world. You know, the Seven Years' War is really, it really is the, the First World War. Um, and without what happened here at Fort Ligonier, you wouldn't have Pittsburgh. So really, Fort Ligonier is a big reason why Pittsburgh is what it is. We could be speaking French. Yeah. Not well, but we could be speaking <laughs> French. So the other thing that you need to see when you come to Fort Ligonier is you're going to see things at this institution that you won't see anywhere else in the region, the state, um, not all in one place. So it is a world-class exhibition. Uh, the World Ablaze, the art gallery, the things that are outside that are, you don't find at, at uh, a state site, probably just because Fort Ligonier is, from its inception to today has always been relatively unique. So it has the opportunity to do a lot more things. And the focus that we have now on education and as being an educational resource, we just want that to bloom and get better. And then, as we talk, we joke back and forth about doing these reenactments, um, just to be able to take a complete train of artillery, march it down Forbes Road with reenactors, and then film it. Actually, I don't think you film anymore. It's videotape or digital. <laughs> but to do it, and then you have that preserved. Now you have an educational tool that you've created, and you can use it over and over and over again in a lot of different places. That's what. Fort Ligonier is. Yeah, there's no better way to learn about history than to go to the places where history happened. And we have this wonderful museum and beautifully reconstructed fort. Um, it really does take you back in time and you get to walk in the footsteps of, of those people that were here 250 years ago. On that note, I'd like to thank my guests for joining us today. As always, if you have questions about today's episode or recommendations for future episodes, please visit our website at PCNTV.com. For everyone here in Battlefield, Pennsylvania, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.